Thanks, Kong, for uh, sharing your, uh, yeah, your experiences with us. Harvest 201 will be starting up again um, in the fall, so <clears throat> you'll be hearing uh, announcements about sign-ups and things like that um, in, uh, in due time, especially as, uh, as the summer, uh, summer rolls along. Some uh, time ago, there was an author named Soren Kierkegaard. Not sure how many of you guys are familiar with Kierkegaard, but he wrote this short story uh, about a traveling circus that was making its way through Denmark. And at this one particular uh, village, it had set up shop. And as they were preparing to open up the circus, a fire broke out within that circus. And so the manager knew that they did not have the requisite supplies in order to put the fire out. And so he sent one of his circus members to the nearby village to go get help. He happened to choose the clown who was already dressed up in his clown attire, ready for his act. And in full attire, he ran into the village, and he ran in, and people were shocked as they saw him. And he said, the circus is on fire! The circus is on fire! And the stunned villagers just stared at him. He said, don't just stand there. The circus is on fire. I need your help. And as the villagers stared at this screaming clown, all of a sudden, they started laughing at him. They said, ah, this clown is so funny. You are so good. You look like such a great clown. And they started applauding him, and they started cheering him. And he said, no, 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 this is not a joke. The circus is on fire. We need you. Come, come. We need you to help put the fire out, because if you don't stop the fire in the circus, it's going to come, and it's going to burn your village down also. And they said, wow, what a great advertisement for the circus this clown is. He's so good at what he does, and they're clapping. And the louder he screamed, the more they laughed. And the more that he warned them, the more they mocked him. Until finally the circus burned down. The fire which could not be contained spread into the village, and the village burned down as well. And by the time the villagers could realize that the warning was true, it was too late. Do you ever feel like you're that clown in this world? You're warning people and you're yelling and you're screaming and you're trying to tell them and trying to communicate something that you think is of utmost importance, but the more you urge them, the more urgently you plead with them, the more they laugh at you and the more they think you're a joke and the more they think you're comical and the more they think you're ridiculous. And they laugh at you and they laugh at you. And for some people, by the time they realize that what you were saying was not a joke, Perhaps it's too late for them. Today I want to look at the life of a man in Scripture who probably felt that way. His name is Noah. I think you, uh, whether you've grown up in the church or not, the true story of Noah is quite familiar to many people. It's been made famous through children's stories and through movies throughout time, throughout paintings, and all kinds of uh, different shows have taken up on the idea of Noah's Ark. But he rolls onto the scene of human history about 1,500 years after the first people, Adam and Eve, were created. And after the first 1,500 years of humanity being in existence on planet Earth, uh, there has been an outbreak of evil and wickedness to the point where God desires to push reset on the whole human project. And so it's in that place that he looks for one person a person who would believe in a person of faith, and it so happened that Noah would be that person. If there's anyone in Scripture who could have been defined by having a faith that's crazy, uh, 
uh, it would be Noah. We're going to read from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. We're going through this series as you turn to Hebrews 11, 7. On this chapter, Hebrews 11, which is oftentimes called the Hall of Fame for faith or the Hall of Faith, it chronicles the accounts of true people who've lived in history whose faith has been remarkable and exemplary for many people, and there's different aspects of faith that we see. We saw through through Abel, what it means to offer a worship of faith. We saw through Enoch last week what it means to walk by faith. Today, we're going to look at what does it mean to have a faith that's crazy, a crazy kind of faith. Hebrews 11, we're going to read verse 7, and we're going to try and unpack this a little bit today. It says, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is God's word. Uh, If anyone, and and you look through the, the chapter 11, there's a bunch of people from Moses to Abraham to Abel to Enoch to Rahab to Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, all these people that will try and talk about their, uh, their biographical accounts as it relates, as, as scripture tells it. Of all these people, if there's one person who the world would look at and say, man, that person because of his faith was crazy, it would be Noah. Okay, what made his faith crazy? I think three things that we want to see here. Here's the first thing. Faith often seems crazy to others, okay? Faith often seems crazy to others. Have anyone ever called you crazy? Uh, when I think of the word crazy, here's what I think. There's this realm of normalcy or normality, this realm of what's normal, this box of what is normal, and then anything outside of that box could be seen as abnormal, okay? So you got this box here. These are normal people contained within this box. If you take one or two steps outside, people might think you're abnormal. When I think of crazy, I think of the extreme outliers, okay? People who are normal right here, but they hang out out here, right? Crazy people. Look at someone that you think is crazy right now. Okay, just kidding. But people who are crazy, there are people who are crazy about a lot of different things. I know there's uh, some of our middle school sisters. Uh, there was a band called One Direction back in, uh, well, it wasn't back in the day, but it was maybe last year or so. And One Direction, there was this one particular guy in this boy band. I forget, I think his name was, was it Zane? I'm looking at Pastor Daniels. If he would, you, <laughs> was it Zane? But Zane left the band for whatever reason, and there were some middle school harvesters who shed literal tears. They were crying because Zane left One Direction. I think about that, I was like, that's not normal. These middle school girls are crazy, okay? Outliers. Okay, it's okay to, oh, did you hear? It's another thing to be sad. It's another thing to cry about that. That's just weird. That's crazy. One time, we were in Ecuador on a mission trip, and a bunch of us were taking a bus. Uh, There was our team and our group from here, and then there was a group of about maybe uh, seven to ten people from the capital city, Quito, who were going with us to do missions work within their own country. In the back of this bus, there were a couple teenage gals from Ecuador, and they were obsessed with Korean pop music. It's called K-pop. They were obsessed to the point where they, so there's this word called fangirling, like they were the epitome of, they knew every single Korean pop singer, they knew every single song, way more than any of our people knew. When uh, someone would mention, do you know so-and-so, and they would bring up a name, 
Uh, they would act like the girls on the Korean videos. I haven't really seen them, but I know how they act because I know how some of us act. They would put both hands over their mouth and they would like hyperventilate in excitement and they would howl and they would scream, oh my God, you know them too. They were so obsessed and so understanding that this is not normal. We said, oh my gosh, you know what? You are crazy. You're crazy. And all of a sudden... This girl got very quiet. This is a true story. The next year, we went back to do missions work in Ecuador, and her mom came up to us the first day, and she said, kind of with this distraught, very concerned look, she said, do you really think my daughter is crazy? We said, what speakest thou? (laughs) What are you talking about? She said, my daughter told me that last year, some of the missionaries from America said that she was crazy because she loves Korean popular music. We said, oh, according to like this definition, outside the box, crazy, yeah, she's crazy, but not according to medical, no, she's not crazy. She said, oh, because I thought you meant that she was estas loca or something like that. She was like literally crazy. And so she said, for a year, we felt so embarrassed and we felt so ashamed. And I felt bad about that. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Maybe things got lost in translation. But no, we didn't think she's literally crazy. We just meant that she's not normal. She's not normal because when someone goes beyond the realm of normal, when other people look at them, they think that they're crazy. And so it was with Noah. The thing about Noah was that he wasn't crazy about a band. He wasn't crazy about music. In fact, he probably didn't even think that he himself was that crazy. All he thought was God said to do something, and I did it. Here's the point. Sometimes, a lot of times, faith makes us seem crazy to those who don't have faith. Do people think you're crazy sometimes? Hey, people think you're crazy for the things that you do. Simply because you take the word of God and you believe it to be true and you act upon it, do people think you're crazy? Because that's what faith often does. And a good litmus test is sometime in your walk of faith, if people don't think you're crazy, either one of two things. You're only hanging out with people who have the same faith as you do, or two, your faith really isn't that vibrant and dynamic to the point where people are seeing it. Because faith oftentimes makes people on the outside think you're crazy. What was it about Noah? It says here, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, one thing, in holy fear built an ark. So two things, the things not yet seen, and he built an ark. When God says, hey, Noah, build an ark, and his true story is recorded in Genesis 6 through 9, God says, hey, Noah, build an ark. That's the first thing he says. He doesn't know why he's building an ark. And then later he tells him, because rain is going to come. So if I'm Noah, if you're Noah, you're asking two questions. What is an ark and what is rain? Because you see, in, that, in those days, Genesis 2.5 tells us that there were plants and there were trees that had come up from the ground, but it had not yet rained on the earth. So the astute reader-listener says, how then did plants and trees and shrubbery grow if there was no rain to fall on the ground? It says in Genesis 2.6, the explanation says that there was a mist. Water came up from under the ground and it misted over the earth, causing the trees and the plants to grow. Last week we talked about how Enoch lived 365 years, Methuselah 969 years. And I said, for some of you, that might be an intellectual roadblock to how I can actually believe in Christianity when you're talking about people living this many years. Well, 
if I can be honest with you, the classical literature of the Greeks, the Romans, the Babylonians, even Chinese literature, if you go back and you read it, talks about how people lived hundreds and hundreds of years back in the ancient world. It's not just the Bible saying this. And scholars and scientists say it's because of the nature of how water filled the earth that it was possible. Because you see, when the flood waters come, immediately the life expectancy is shortened. Why? What was it about the mist that watered the ground that caused people to live a long time? I'm not exactly sure what it is about the mist itself, but when the rains begin to fall, as it did for the first time during the time of Noah and the flood, atmospheric, stratospheric pressures, all of these things changed. It says from that point, not only did the waters underneath burst, but the heavens opened up and all of this water came flooding down and everything in our environment changed, especially the way we relate to the sun. Up until that point in time, the sun's harmful rays did not degenerate <clears throat> and did not deteriorate the cells within our body. That's part of the explanation. We could go on and on about this. Why did I talk about this? So that it, it can at least give you some semblance of an understanding of why people live that long. But the other reason is to say, to highlight the faith of Noah, to understand this simple idea. When God said, it's going to rain, Noah had no idea what rain was. And so simply taking God at his word, he said, I'm going to hear what you say, and I'm going to follow you. The second question he asked, not only what is rain, but what's a boat? Because he was hundreds of miles from where water was. No river, no lake, no ocean there. Okay, nothing in sight. He didn't even know what, so how did he make the boat? Because in Genesis 6 through 9, God tells him specifically, this is what you need to do. You need to get this kind of wood, you need to make it this long, you need to make it this big. It was a massive edifice that took 120 years to build. One and a half football fields long, three stories high, a massive, gigantic box of a ship. In fact, uh, naval scholars, I, I was reading this week, about how one author says that the Naval Academy in Annapolis, uh, they said throughout history, uh, naval ships have taken on a bunch of different proportions and different dimensions. But when they realized, when the British first made this ship called the Dreadnought, a naval sh uh, sailing ship, and they said this ship is the perfect proportion for a naval battleship. And when they looked at the numbers and they looked at the figures, they said this is almost the exact proportions of the way God told Noah to make his ark 1,500 years after the earth was created. So God knew how to make a boat. And he told Noah this is the way that you're supposed to make it in order that all of these people and all of these animals can survive on it. See, Noah, when he's building this ark, can you imagine for 120 years he's building this ark? And you think people are wondering, hey, Noah, why are you cutting down that tree? Noah, why are you putting these things together? And as this boat or this box is starting to come in this shape, you have to think that people are thinking he's kind of crazy for what he's doing. What kind of a project is he working on? What is he trying to accomplish here? Because faith oftentimes makes us look crazy, makes us look crazy to other people. You have to think at some point his wife started avoiding the other women in the ancient world. Because maybe after the second year, they're saying, hey, Miss Noah, is your husband still making that box out there? Still making that big old box in that field? After year five, after year 10, after 30 years of putting up with this? And then you think of his children, 
uh, maybe they're getting uh, Sham, Ham, and Japheth getting made fun of at school. Hey, is your dad the one who's making that, that big old box out there? What is he trying to do? Dad said it's going to rain. What's rain? What do you think it's like for Noah? At a certain point, you think his kids and mom, his wife, begin to think, Dad, are you crazy? Why are you doing this? But simply because God said, do this, he did it, and people said he's crazy. Let me ask you a question. If you were Noah and God said, build this ark, would you do it? And it's not some, like, one-month project or two-month project. This is taking 120 years. God said, judgment is coming. You've got to warn your people. You've got to do this. Would you do it? This kind of reminds me of, uh, of the time, 1999, uh, I was living in Charlottesville, Virginia. I went home to Northern Virginia to, to be with my parents for a little bit. Uh, I think it was in the winter time. I was on winter break. I went down to the basement, and in the basement, there were lined up, stocked up, these gallon jugs of water. And I was like, what in the world is going on here? There was canned food, a bunch of spam up in that place. And I was like, hey, what's going on here? And my mom's like, don't you know? It's Y2K. <laughs> For those of you who are, are young, you don't remember, Y2K was this massive scare that people were talking about, not many people, but some people were talking about, that when the year 2000 rolls around and your phones and your computers and the banking systems and all these things begin to hit from 99 to 00, they're going to get confused thinking it's going back to 1900. They said all the things in the computer, computer base are going to crash and everything's going to fall apart. They said, you've got to pull out your money, uh, the, there's going to be looting, there's going to be chaos, and apparently not many people believed it, but my mom did. And she stocked up, and I was like, Ma, you're crazy. You're crazy. Ain't nothing going to happen. And I think, in a sense, my mom understood what Noah felt like when everyone was making fun of her. Y2K never happened, but the floodwaters did. And Noah, because he had faith, went against what everybody else said, went against popular opinion, because a lot of times, can I tell you, faith will go against public opinion. Faith will go against what is popular. Faith will not make sense to many people in our world. Why do you do the things that you do and you say, God told me to do it? A lot of times it doesn't make any sense. Why are you saving yourself for marriage? Why are you not just dating whomever you want to date? Don't you know how much he likes you? Don't you know how much money he makes? Why are you doing these things? And it doesn't make sense a lot of times. Why are you going to those places? Why do you do those things? Why do you not do these things? A lot of times faith looks crazy to people who don't have the same faith that you do. And it's the first thing that Noah shows us about faith is that a lot of times, a lot of times, your faith will seem crazy to other people. It's the first thing that we see here. Second thing that we see, that crazy faith grows each time you exercise faith. Anne Lamott wrote a book called Bird by bird, it's a fast, it's a fast, I, I have not read the book. I only need to know why the book was called this, and this is enough for me. Bird by bird, she talks about the time her little brother had a project to do a research project on birds. And like many of us are prone to do, he procrastinated, and he procrastinated, he procrastinated until the night before this major research paper, I don't know how major it was, he was a little boy, but this major paper was due. And so he sprawled out all these books about birds on his dining room table, and about sometime in the evening, he began 
the process of thinking about how this paper is going to be written. And as he looked at all of these books, he started crying. And he said, how am I going to write this paper? How am I going to finish this paper by tomorrow? And his dad came up to him. He put his arm around him. He said, son, you can do it. You can do it. And this is what he said, bird by bird. You can do it, bird by bird. The reason I bring this up, how do you have a crazy faith like Noah? You do it bird by bird. In other words, you do it nail by nail. You do it plank by plank. You do it piece by piece. I know if you're, if you're astute as a listener, you will say, hey, you know what? Um, don't you remember you said this last week? Right? You talked about how do you walk by faith? You do it day by day. You're saying the same thing. You're repeating yourself over and over. I think it's true. It's important because two of the first three heroes in the hall of faith, the Bible writers are clear that this is how faith grows. And I think we need to understand this because a lot of us, at least for me, okay, at least for me, I want to have this kind of a crazy faith. But I know in my heart of hearts, I'm way far away from the faith of Noah. And maybe you feel that way also. Yeah, one day I'd like to get to the faith of Noah where people say that I'm crazy because of my faith, but I'm just not there yet. I barely have enough faith to wake up on Sunday morning and make it out to church. How am I ever going to have that kind of faith? Here's how you do it. You do it bird by bird. You do it brick by brick. You do it wood piece by wood piece. You do it nail by nail. Every time you exercise faith, your faith grows. Don't you see? There's this, this village that was, uh, this, this city that was very famous for having had many celebrities and athletes born in that city. And as this tour of the city was going around and someone was saying, this is the home of such and such and this is the home of such and such, all of these famous people, this one theologically minded person asked the tour guide, said, hey, has any, any like spiritual giants, any amazing pastors, any amazing missionaries, any giants of the faith born in this city? And the tour guide looked at him and he responded, no spiritual giants, only babies were born here. What is he saying? The same thing. No spiritual giants are born spiritual giants. You become a spiritual giant as you grow, as you feed, as you exercise your faith. It's like working out, okay? Working out, which uh, I obviously... Uh, do a lot of, <laughs> just but when you go, you start working out, okay, you, I don't know how much a, a normal person starts out lifting, you lift like uh, 10 pounds, okay, you lift 10 pounds, the next time you go to work out, you don't lift 10 pounds again, you don't lift weights day after day after day, or other day after every other day, whatever it is, whatever interval you work out, and at the end of 15 years of working out, you're still pushing up 10 pounds on the bench, that's not how it works, every time you do this, the next time you get stronger so that you can do a little bit more the next time, so that by the time five years is done, you're able to lift 50 pounds or 100 pounds or 150 or 200 pounds, whatever that, that, that weight is. Each time you exercise, you get stronger. And the same thing is true when it comes to your faith. Your faith grows into a crazy faith when you exercise faith. It's not these isolated incidents where your faith remains stagnant and the same each time you do it. Every time you do something that exercises faith, the next time your faith has grown so that you're able to lift more and more and more 
Each time you exercise spiritual faith, your faith muscles grow. Each time you neglect to exercise spiritual faith, your faith muscles atrophy. This is the way it is. How do you think people grow in the faith? How do you think spiritual muscle is grown? Day by day, right? Exercising faith. Every time you do something that requires faith, it helps you to do something greater the next time around. I remember when I started out ministry, I was full-time ministry. I was, uh, I forget, 28 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I was young. There was an older gentleman in our congregation uh, who was going through, uh, he was married, a uh, different life stage. I was single at the time. He was married and was cheating on his wife. And I knew that as his pastor now, I needed to call this out. I needed to confront him on it. But I was scared to death. What am I supposed to I don't know anything about I'm, I'm single. I'm young. I don't have, I have nothing behind my ear. I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I said, do I do it or do I run? Do I do it or I run? What are you going to do? What do you do in that place? What do you do if you're me? Do you, do you confront them? Do you call them out and say, hey, you're, you're, you're seeing somebody who's not your wife? And I said, you know what? This is hard. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray like crazy, but this is not natural for me. I, I don't like doing this. But I know that if I do this, then the next time I have to do this, it's going to be a lot easier because my faith will have grown. Every time you exercise faith, people of God, your faith grows so that you could do something stronger, harder, more difficult the next time. 120 years, Noah's building faith, building faith, building faith. So by the time this box is done, he's got a crazy faith that's able to withstand all of the barbs and all of the mocks and all of the insults that people are throwing at him. I don't, I don't like to live with a lot of regrets, but there's one time, I, one time recently I feel like I have regrets and it comes to not exercising faith. The principal at the school that Elijah attends knows I'm a pastor, and she said, hey, uh, would, you, would you like to preach at our chapel for children? And I said, oh, no, I'm not good at speaking to kids. That really scares me. Right? That's the worst thing ever for me. And she said, okay, uh, this is like maybe in October. She's like, we got all this year and all of next year into May. Anytime you want to do it, just let me know. No, and every time I saw her, I thought about this invitation to bring the greatest message that the world could ever know and bring it to the hearts of those who are most impressionable. And every time I said no, every time I said no, that's not me, every time I, I knew I should do it. I was like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And the school year came and the school year ended, and I never did it. And I kick myself about it. I'm like, dang, I should have. Because I know that if I did it, that my faith would have grown as I did. Whenever God gives you the nudge, whenever God gives you the call, whenever God speaks into your heart, exercise faith in this place. Obey quickly because your faith is going to grow in that moment. So what is it for you? Is it to have that difficult conversation with that person that you don't want to have that conversation with because you're afraid? Is it inviting someone to church, inviting them to house church, bringing them out? He said, you've been praying for this person for a long time, and God says, all right, they're ready. Share the gospel. Drop the G-bomb on them. Like, ah, oh, they're not ready. Ah, oh, they're not ready. Ah, oh, I'm going to lose a friendship. Hey, God says, doing it, take that step. Somebody that God's been calling you to reach out to in your school, lockers right next to yours, but you know they got no friends. 
Sometimes they smell a little bit off, and you think maybe they don't have a home to live in. You don't know everything about them, and God's saying talk to them, engage them, leverage your influence in order to be an influence in their life. Start something in your workplace. Start something in your school. Go pray for your coworker. What is it that God has put in your heart to do that requires faith to do? That if God doesn't show up, it's not going to happen. Now you pray to God, you pray to God, you pray to God because this is how crazy faith grows. For some of us, it's taking that step of faith. You've seen the announcements that say, hey, you can teach youth ministry. And you're saying, man, now is my time, but I'm scared. Maybe it's about going out and being a house church shepherd, whatever that might be in your life. What is it that God is calling you to do that requires you to exercise some faith? This is where spiritual giants are grown. This is how crazy faith is grown. Each time you take a step out of your comfort zone and you do the very thing that you don't want to do, that you know that God is calling you to do. Because this, my friends, is how faith grows from faith to faith to faith to crazy faith, the kind that Noah had. This is the second thing we see. Last thing. Last thing that we see. One crazy person, okay, one crazy person can save others. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Crazy times call for crazy faith sometimes. You think it's, you think it's hard to live for, for Christ now. The Bible says that in Noah's time, he's preaching a sermon illustration of coming judgment and of salvation that could be theirs for 120 years, but nobody believes him. You think life is hard for you when you're trying to reach out to people 120 years. Can you imagine 120 years of telling people about grace, 120 years of altar calls, 120 years of inviting people to come to Jesus and no response? It's so bad, in fact, that God said that every intention of every heart was only evil all the time. That's a bunch of North Korean dictators running around on the earth doing everything they wanted to do that was only evil all the time, not only in their actions, but God who peers into their heart said every intention of their heart was only evil, not just some of the time, but all the time. And it says God's heart was broken to the utmost. And when the night is the darkest, the light shines the brightest. Guys, it's in times like today, in crazy times, that God is looking and searching and longing. All it took was one person. All it takes is one person to respond to the call of God. And there's no reason why it has to be somebody special or somebody old or somebody young or somebody rich or somebody famous. There's every reason why that person can and ought to be you. Why not you? Why not me? Why not here? Why not now? God is just looking for one person, and it says nothing about the faith of these seven other people. All it says is that Noah believed, and because Noah believed, seven other people were saved with him. Because one crazy person can save countless others. Because you have... in. 
the assumption here then is out of the entire world and out of all of the people, there's only one person, Noah, who had faith. But because he had faith in him was the seed of a revival that would change the lives of people for all time. Good night. This is amazing, powerful stuff. I, I, I talked about this before. Alan Hirsch, he says, imagine this, okay, imagine this. Imagine if, and, and I'll, I'll contextualize it for a time, imagine if somehow in some way in somewhere somebody drops a nuclear bomb and all the Christians on the planet are wiped out. There's this one haven of people where there's maybe like a, a thousand people, a million people, but one elderly lady, 80 years old, survived, and she's the only Christian. It's like the book of Eli. She's the only Christian left. One Christian amongst thousands or millions or however many people, he says, listen, if you've got the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've got faith within you, then you have the seed of a revolution. One person, that's all it takes. You've got one person in the midst of a world gone crazy, one crazy person in the midst of a crazy world, one person, and you still have the seed of a revolution. One person, you've got the hope of the gospel because within the seed is a tree, and within the tree there's a forest. All it takes is one person willing to be crazy, and crazy isn't crazy. All it is is just doing what God says to do. All it takes, one person. A man named John Getty, he went to this island called the Natchim in 1848. It says on his tombstone, 1848 when he went, there were no Christians. 1872 when he died, there were no non-Christians. There were no heathens. One person transforms what's now known as the New Hebrides Island transform that entire place. Adoniram Judson, modern-day Myanmar. When he was in seminary, he read this book in the library that talked about Burma, all right, which is now Myanmar. And he read about these people, how all they worship are idols. And he said, Jesus, you are showing me my life. You're showing me my path. I shall bring Jesus to Burma. And he and his wife were sent out as the first missionaries from America, Adoniram Judson, and he went to Burma where oppressive heat, poor living conditions, widespread disease, bad food riddled him and his wife's body. And then a few years later, when Burma, war broke out between them and Britain because he looked like a Brit, he was thrown into jail. He was marched barefoot for eight miles and he was tortured and he was beaten and he was thrown into jail. And the only reason he survived all those years in jail was because his wife would come and she would bring him food and she would plead with the guards, please treat him nicely. Finally, he was released from prison and his wife died. Two of their babies died when they were young because of malnourishment, because of disease. And he had a near nervous breakdown. And they would say at all hours of the night, in all kinds of weather, he would go and he would just weep at the gravestone, at the tombstone of his wife. And he would just weep and he would weep and he would weep. But his heart still set on bringing Jesus to the Burmese people. It says by the time he died, 7,000 people counted themselves Christian. 63 churches had been set up and 163 missionaries had left their homelands and had gone to Burma as missionaries. The Bible he translated into Burmese is still the very Bible that they use and the dictionary that he translated into their language after having studied and learned it and come up with their alphabet is a dictionary that's still being used in Burma today. One person, 
wanted to act out in faith. And when one person sees by faith what God calls them to see, and they go, countless people can be saved. You look at this group of 160, however many are, are sitting here. Man, there is a seed of a revival within this place. If we would rise up in faith, why not you? And why not now? It's a seed of a revolution that would change the face of history, that would change eternity. If we would hear the call of God in our lives. Every time we hear about people like John Getty, every time we hear about people like Adoniram Judson, we think of people like Noah who responded to God in faith. It says, in holy fear, Noah built an ark. Why? Because Noah understood, God, I need to do this because I deserve the same judgment as everyone else in this world does. I deserve to be drowned in the floodwaters because I am a sinful man. In fact, you'd see this in the very next account. After the account of Noah and the flood, Noah, in shamefulness, commits a grievous sin. He gets drunk. He lies naked. All of these sinful, shameful acts of Noah's life. See, Noah wasn't saved because he was so great and because he was so moral and he was so righteous. In fact, he wasn't. The only thing that saved him was he had faith that another would make me righteous, that somebody else would make me righteous. And he knew that he needed an outside intervention to save him as much as anybody else did. And it was only because of mercy that he would be saved on the ark. It says, because of faith, he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And so in Romans 3.21, it tells us that none of us are righteous. But there is a righteousness that can be given to all of us that does not come from our works, that does not come from the law, but comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Saying, by faith, my one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. Unless we understand what that means, that he is my righteousness, that my works, my righteousness, my goodness are not my righteousness. In fact, my best acts before God, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags before God because even our motivation is tainted with sin. We need one who did this perfectly for us. And it was Jesus. You're going to get this very quickly, but all these heroes of the faith are ultimately all pointing us to Jesus. You know this. If there ever was a crazy one, if there ever was one that was considered crazy, it was Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, I uh, forget exactly, maybe Mark 4.31, Jesus is teaching and he's preaching. And his disciples say, your mother and your brothers, your family's at the door, and they want you to get out because they think you're out of your mind. They think you're crazy. Do you have family members who think you're crazy because you believe in the crucified Messiah because you believe in the crazy one? Do people in your family think you're crazy? So did Jesus. Jesus' own brothers and sisters thought he was nuts. And then he went to the cross and then he died for the unbelief of every person who saw, who heard, but did not put their trust in him. 
And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then the book of the Gospels, fast forward in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says the disciples were there. The women who were at the tomb were there. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And who else was there? It says the brothers of Jesus were there praying as well. What does that mean? It means that when you have faith in this crazy message that God came down and he lived for you and he died for you and he became your righteousness and he took your unrighteousness upon himself and then he burst through the tomb with life and victory. That God never gives up on anybody. That your crazy faith can save other people because God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish but that all would come to repentance. If you haven't come to Jesus, and God is patient with you, and he's calling you to come to him now. Eternity matters. Death comes to all of us. There is a righteousness that is afforded to all of us that comes apart from anything that we do, but that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, but you need to come, and you need to come to him and put your trust in him. He stands at the door, and he knocks. At the end of our days, we're all going to be crazy for something. There's going to be people who look at us and say, you know what, they're not normal for something. They're not normal for their business. They're not normal for their grace. They're not normal because of how much they study. We're all going to be called crazy for something. Why not be crazy for Jesus? Why not be crazy knowing that your craziness could bring others to salvation in Christ? Let's pray. Let's pray together. Do you have faith in Christ today? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ today? If you have, let's not hide our light under a bushel. Let's not hide our light under a bowl. Let's let our light shine. There's a difference. Uh, He didn't tell us to be obnoxious. Some people, for the sake of faith, are obnoxious. They go around telling people uh, things and, and, and sharing the truth in a way that's not very loving or kind or in keeping with the truth, as our brother Kong shared. I'm not saying don't be obnoxious. Right? Noah didn't even think he was crazy. He just thought he was faithful. Simply by being faithful to God, people are going to think you're crazy. So here, here's how we grow in faith. Not by striving for more, but it's by seeing and resting in the faithful one. Let's do that today. Can we do that? Let's renew our faith, renew a re-pledge our trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. If that's you for the first time, I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ to save me from the judgment that is coming because of my sin. You know this. Every crime needs to be punished. Every sin needs to be dealt with. And God says that judgment comes to all because of our sin against the Holy Creator. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do that today. I invite you to do that today. After we pray for a minute or so, I'm going to give an invitation. If there's anyone in here who says, you know what, I've been going to church. I've been living this life. But maybe I don't, maybe I don't really know. Maybe I don't really, maybe I haven't ever put my trust in Jesus. Let's pray together in a minute. I'm going to give that invitation for anyone who wants to do that. But let's pray. Let's renew our faith in Christ. Lifting, exercising spiritual muscle. Every time you do that, your faith grows. Every time you do that, people see Christ in you.
Let's pray together for, for a minute and give an invitation for those who want to put their trust in the Lord Jesus today. Let's pray together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door of every person's heart and I knock. Right? He's not going to barge into our hearts. You know what? He doesn't barge into our hearts just because we go to church. He doesn't barge into our, he doesn't open the door and come into our hearts just because we've grown up in church. He doesn't open the door for us because we've been to Presbyterian church or Baptist church or Catholic church or whatever it is because we went to a Catholic school or grew up in a Christian environment. He doesn't open the door for us. You need to do that by faith and faith is just trusting, saying, you know what, Jesus, I need you. I need to trust you to be my savior, the forgiver of all of my wrongs and to be the master of my life. I need you to do that. Jesus stands at the door of every heart and he knocks. He says, if you hear my voice, would you open the door by faith? Saying, Jesus, come in. I need you. I put my trust in you. For those of us who've already made that profession, let's renew that commitment to Jesus right now. And for those of us who haven't, it's a simple invitation. If that's you, I'm not going to put you on the spot in any way, but I just want to be able to recognize you and pray for you and, and to follow up with you to make sure that we're understanding what faith is. If there's anyone like that, you know what? I need Jesus today. I need to put my trust in Jesus. I need to transfer my trust into Jesus to be my forgiver and my new master. And as we pray together, if there's anyone like that, you can just raise your hand where you are. Just raise your hand where you are. people like that in here, please, please come talk to me. Talk to your house church shepherd if you're not sure. Talk to your Bible study leader. If you're on the fence, you have questions, yeah, please talk to someone about that, about this. Let's pray as we uh, yeah, conclude this part of our time and continue to worship. Father in heaven, thank you for an amazing grace that as it was in Noah's day, you provided a way out to save a people of faith from the disaster that was to come. Thank you that as it is in those days, it is today through Jesus that you provide a way out by virtue of our placing our trust in Christ, turning over the throne of our hearts from ourselves, from something else to you, Jesus. So Father, we pray that we would be a church like that. People who understand your grace, who love you so deeply, who follow you so closely, and whom the world looks at and says there's something crazy but something beautiful about the way these Christians live. Let that be our legacy. Let that be our church. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray.